Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. My calendar is already starting to look a little bit packed because theatre companies all over the country and also the major city festivals have been announcing their programs for several weeks and tantalising me with all the things that I would really like to see if uh, I can afford the interstate flights. Um, Joining me on the line is Olivia Ansell, who's the Artistic Director of Sydney Festival, uh, the 2023 Sydney Festival running from the 5th to the 29th. 9th of January, as always, an excellent opportunity to to be a cultural tourist, to get a taste of some of the major events programmed in festivals, which may well then end up in Melbourne as part of Rising later in the year, may perhaps tour later in the year, or just give you the bragging rights to say, I saw something that my friends didn't. Olivia, I know you don't program just for Melburnians, but... Uh, <laughs> It does feel, looking at this year's program, that one of the things you have programmed for is is a sense of the truly immersive in art. Yes, good morning, Richard, and thanks for having me on. Exactly. I think one of the things we, we, we wanted to achieve this year with the festival is inviting Sydney siders and visitors to Sydney to rediscover the city differently. And, and we do that through sort of unearthing these found spaces right across Greater Sydney and the CBD uh, and, you know, with lots of different contemporary music and experimental audio experiences. We, we, we're taking over the Harry Seidler building in Martin Place with a sonic dream experience composed by Kelsey Lou. So you actually stay overnight in what we affectionately call the Mushroom, which is this kind of 20th century brutalist uh, building in the middle of Martin Place. And then deep in the basement, we've got 20 nights of contemporary music, June Jones, Alice Skye, Hate Rock, Coloured Stone. So um, even just in the music program, you can see that immersivity. Now, I'll come back to that lucid dreaming experience in a moment, but perhaps one of the first events that caught my eye, and I'm sure, I'm sure caught a few other people's eyes as well, Sydney is renowned for its beaches. Uh, they're <laughs> ten times better than Melbourne beaches. That's no, there's kind of, it, you totally win there. But you're creating a brand new beach inside Sydney Town Hall. We are. Uh, so our, our brand is the art of summer. So there's nowhere else but Sydney to come for an exhilarating summer of art. And when I saw this work, and I actually saw it, funny enough, in Iceland, in Reykjavik, <laughs> one of the coldest places in the world, I thought I, I couldn't go past it. Wouldn't it make the most spectacular installation in Sydney? It, it first premiered at the Venice Biennale in 2019 and won the Golden Lion, uh, composed by three Lithuanian women. And it's all around sustainability, these elegies for the natural world. The libretto sung in English, and and in the um, text, there's references to the Great Barrier Reef, and a lot of the environmental um, sort of uh, connections are to the Southern Hemisphere, and uh, it, it takes over. So there's like 50 choristers on this beach, and they're there for about four to five hours. And you, as an audience member, wander in and around up the top of the galleries, looking down onto the installation. Um, it, it's quite it's as much a visual art spectacle 
as it is an opera. And uh, it, it, it's quite a moment for us to have this in Sydney. So we're very excited. And why not do it indoors? I mean, with all this talk of La Nina, it sort of felt like, well, here's a foolproof opportunity. <laughs> now, I have to ask, where are you getting the sand from and what happens to it afterwards? Yes, look, so our head of technical, John Bailey, has um, is sourcing the sand through a particular company and then it's uh, it'll be ethically repurposed. So I can assure everyone that the sand has been um, ethically sourced and will be ethically taken care of after the production. We're certainly not just going down and picking it up. It's um, there, There's companies that you can work with who make sure that um, it's cyclical in terms of its usage. Now, one of the things that has helped not necessarily define the Sydney Festival program in recent years, but certainly has been a key part of it, is a commitment to artworks and music and theatre by Australia's first peoples. This is a tradition that is continuing in the 2023 festival. Yes, absolutely. So the Blackout program was created by Wesley Enoch, my predecessor, and uh, now we have Jacob Nash, who's our curator of the Blackout program and Sydney Festival's artist-in-residence. And Jake was with us for last year's festival and again for this year. He's got four world premieres, uh, so we're thrilled to have Tracker by the Australian Dance Theatre. It's... uh, Created by Daniel Riley, and it's the story of Dan Riley's great-great-uncle, Alec Riley, who was a Wiradjuri man and a bush tracker with the New South Wales Police Force. And this is a really interesting story written by Ursula Jovic. There's Tom Wetherill, who many would know from ABC's All My Friends Are Racist. He's uh, got a world premiere in blue at Belvoir. And uh, we've got Janet's Vagrant Love by the one and only Elaine Crombie and um, Deborah Cheatham in Wave and Song. Many, many other First Nations work and an incredible vigil ceremony uh, that Jake's co-directing with Stephen Page. I'm also intrigued by the opportunity to see works that are unique in terms of being crafted and created by Sydney artists. Uh, it's, for me, it's certainly one of the attractions of visiting any city for the, the time its festival is on. Not only do you get to experience a familiar city in a different light because of the way a festival will activate streets and spaces, but the opportunity mm. to uh, present work by local companies that I may not ever have the chance to see in Melbourne is also key. Talk to us about some of those aspects of the program, which w- I'm sure will particularly tantalise uh, cultural tourists from Melbourne thinking about a summer trip to Sydney in January. Yes, absolutely. We've got a really interesting uh, project called Monumental Working Title, and it's curated by Brian Fawata and Latai Tamapia. It's a collaboration with Art Gallery of New South Wales, produced by Intimate Spectacle, and it sees Uh, at least 15 different independent artists take over the public spaces of the art gallery. It's free and it's over two days. So you can, you can go to either day and you'll see the same program. But you can imagine, you know, from glass atriums to, um, you know, different rooms where some of the more traditional, um, let's say, colonial art is. And what Brian and Latine have done is they've flipped it and they juxtapose it. Um, and it's sort of reconciling that art, if you like. Really, really interesting. There was a very short season of this performed in May last year. And, um, and just due to COVID and what have you, it just felt like it deserved a far bigger audience. So... Um, that will happen over at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. We've got Meryl Tankard, who uh, is quite the legendary choreographer, who's working with formed arts projects from Western Sydney and mentoring five mid-career choreographers. And they're working with Eleanor Katz-Chernan uh, on score, so she'll be performing live, and Regis Lansak, who's Meryl's 
life and visual um, uh, collaborator, life partner and visual collaborator, I should say. And this is a work around the uncertainty of the times we find ourselves in. So the uncertainty that we're in politically, socially, environmentally and financially, I might add. And that's a really interesting piece that'll be on at the Carriage Works for a one-week season. Um, we've got Message Bank by Operated Coin, Parramatta by Parramatta Artist Studio, and then um, some really interesting Western Sydney filmmakers have created this program called Latitude with the Powerhouse in Western Sydney. Um, and we have a whole range of local uh, Sydney musicians as well, including Tim Friedman, who's making a response to uh, the work of Brett Whiteley in Brett Whiteley's art studio in Surrey Hills. One of the things that major festivals like Sydney Festival do is also then give Sydney audiences a chance to see some of the remarkable work being made elsewhere around the country and looking at your program for 2023, some of the works that spring to mind uh, in this category, uh, Holding Achilles for example, which had a Brisbane festival season earlier this year uh, Girls and Boys, which I saw at the State Theatre Company production of in Adelaide back in March and was blown mm. away by that production is coming up to Sydney in January as well. Uh, and then also uh, Melbourne's own Stephanie Lake uh, choreographing yes. Manifesto, which is one of those rare works that I think every single major festival uh, said, yes, we will help co-commission this. In, it, absolutely, yes. Yeah. So we, we have the Australian Major Festival Commission and um, and you know, some, some of the works I've mentioned already are part of that. But Manifesto, I think she scooped the pool with interest from every single festival director. And that production is actually selling out in every city it plays. Just the magic of bringing nine dancers and nine drummers together. And it has this kind of contemporaneity, this Busby Berkeley kind of contemporaneity flipped on its head and it's a, it's a real sheer physical tattoo to optimism and I think Stephanie Lake as a Melbourne choreographer is just on the rise and rise. She's got to work up here at the moment with City Dance Company as part of a triple bill and I know there's much anticipation to see Manifesto as a full-length season. Holding Achilles is an interesting work with Legs on the Wall and Dead Puppet Society. It's starring Montaigne, who many would know from Eurovision and uh, the score that Montaigne has written is absolutely divine. And so, um, you know, a hot tip is to get in quick for that one, absolutely. And, of course, we have international works as well, which is really exciting. Um, Sarah Barras from Spain in Alma, so seven dancers, seven musicians at Sydney Opera House Concert Hall. She is the queen of bolero and flamenco. And I, I call her the king of Faruka because Faruka is a dance style typically reserved for men, but... Um, Sarah Barras is an absolute master at it. And so in her fiery full force, um, she'll grace the stage for three performances. We've also got Room by James Carey, who's a Swiss uh, French-based artist, um, coming up with 14 uh, performers across opera, jazz, you know, a really mixed cast of different type of artists. And in talking to James when he was in his Paris flat, although there's worse places to be, in the height of the lockdown, he, he decided to make a work about being locked down in a room and the kind of madness, soliloquy, chaos, debauchery, you know, um, love, sadness that comes with that. And so this is this big sort of spectacle illusion that, um, that kind of extrapolates the chaos we all went through. <laughs> If we're talking about international works, I should always also acknowledge the fact that you've got uh, a work by a circus company from Guinea slash Canada performing, again, maintaining Sydney Festival's commitment to presenting work in Parramatta and Western Sydney, uh, but an... Uh, just looking at some of the video and some of the images for this company, it looks 
like an incredibly dynamic work, perhaps the, the opposite of a work made about being in one room in lockdown. <laughs> exactly. Now, A Freak on Cirque is a beautiful production. It's by Calabante Productions. And, and this circus ensemble, they had a circus school in Guinea in West Africa, and um, they went to, like, a circus conference in Montreal, like, let's just say it was about five years ago, and uh, were discovered, and next thing you know, you know, two years later, they were touring North America, there was a little bit of COVID, and then they've just picked up that touring the last 18 months and taken North America by storm. Seven acrobats, four musicians, traditional uh, Guinean rhythms on the, on the Guinean djembes, uh, highly rhythmic, full of vivacity and energy. It'll have you up on your feet, but they are a really, really beautiful company, and we're already getting so much excitement around this at Parramatta. And, and whilst in Parramatta, you can't go past Gutted by Restless Dance Company, a beautiful piece set in the bowling alley, and also Indian Ink Theatre Company and Jacob Rajan in Paradise or the Impermanence of Ice Cream. So, yes, we're, we're, we're super thrilled for our Western Sydney program and, and you know, a free concert will be one of the big blockbusters of the festival. And, Olivia, let's perhaps wrap up by talking about some of the programming for children and families, which is clearly uh, a, a commitment from all festivals to recognise that um, an audience who may have come to a festival in their 20s and 30s now have kids. They want something for... Mm. for for the whole family to be able to enjoy, not just the the grown-ups. So there's uh, Bangara, for example, Bangara Dance Theatre, their first dedicated work for children is part of the family's program. Yes, this is a gorgeous piece titled Waru, uh, featuring principal artist Elma Christ from the Torres Strait. And it's around um, looking after our endangered species from the Torres Strait, in this case the turtle. And it's a 30-minute work and it it encourages all the children to engage in activities uh, during the performance. It's very sweet. That's down on the south of Sydney, uh, the Pavilion Performing Arts Centre. There's a, uh, a really uh, gorgeous piece titled The Insect Circus, and it's a 30-minute marionette puppetry show that's at the Seymour Centre. And the, the show sort of uh, traverses all these different insects, you know, like bugs and caterpillars and wasps and things that, that join the circus and do all the circus apparatus, all with, um, like, marionette puppet strings. It's really clever. I saw it at the London International Mime Festival. So um, so that's coming. Down at Tumbalong Park, free for families, we have Cupid's Koi Fish Garden, which is this inflatable world of um, koi fish and fountains, a uh, perfect thing for summer for children to play amongst. And over at the Australian Museum, we have Earth's Shark Dive, where children can, this is all metaphorically, of course, can get into their diving gear and, um, and, and go down inside a tank hundreds of metres to the bottom of the ocean and watch sharks swimming around above the ocean bed floor and get up close with the sharks and then, of course, they, they get taken back up to shore and they sit in the decompression chamber and hear lots of silly jokes. So, But it's a whole lot of fun and the families go underwater for the day at the Australian Museum. So, no, and there's lots more as well, so best to check out the website. Go to sydneyfestival.org.au for full details. We've literally only scratched the surface of what is on at the 2023 Sydney Festival, running from the 5th to the 29th of January. Tickets to some of the the, the major shows will sell out. So if you're thinking about a, a trip to Sydney this summer to check out some of the Sydney Festival program, my advice is to jump online, book tickets now, but also book flights and accommodation as well, because uh, yeah. <laughs> kind of, uh, as we slowly emerge from the pandemic 
Ticket uh, airfares are certainly a lot more expensive. So start planning now. Start booking now. Uh, www.sydneyfestival.org.au. As I said, the festival running from the 5th to the 29th of January. I've been chatting with the festival's artistic director, Olivia Ansel. Olivia, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Richard. Chat soon. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. It's time for us to talk comic books. Bernard Callio joins us in the studio for our monthly conversation about. The, the magic that occurs when you pair sequential visual narrative and text on a page or on a tablet hey. or on a screen uh, and you make comics. The segment is called Drawn Out. Bernard, hello. Richard, what's hello to you? Uh, yes. What, what, what happens in the, in the gap? What happens in the gutter? What happens in our minds? What happens on the page? These are the things that we discuss in Drawn Out. Uh, now, the gutter is that kind of strip between panels on a frame. What sometimes is delightful when you see artists and writers going... I'm going to use even the gutter. I'm going to have my character break out of the frame and go, oh, I'm in a weird white space. What's going on? Oh, there's a giant looking at me. All of that kind of stuff is fun. Or or Sergio Aragones, of course, in Mad Magazine, who used to do those things called marginals, which are just those tiny little drawings, little funny, sketchy drawings that they were just sort of littered uh, in amongst uh, those white spaces. Um, Yeah. And, of course, I think it goes back to medieval manuscripts as well, where, you know, you could... You, could, you can sort of feel the, the, the monks and the transcribers going, oh, I really want to draw a dog <laughs> on the corner of Luke's gospel or whatever. Yeah, or a, a snail chasing a dog or yeah, all those weird little things that you get. Yeah, yeah, the beginnings yep. of cartooning. Um, but, what have you got on your reading pile? Well, what I've got on my reading pile is something that you brought back from Ireland and uh, uh, handed across the, the, the desk uh, last week, and I'd have to say chest, but that's because the, the name of this zine, I suppose, uh, is War Chest, uh, a comic anthology that celebrates some of the less well-known stories and characters of the 1916 Rising in Ireland, um, and this was published in 2017, so obviously a 100-year anniversary um, publication and a beautiful little book with six or seven stories in there, all three or four page long, uh, one a little longer, but... Um, and, of course, the 1916 uprising, a Republican moment. Yeah. Now, one of the things that intrigued me was uh, how this comic resonated with you, Bernard, given that you don't necessarily know a lot about the 1916 Easter Rising. Mm. Foundational moment in the birth of the Irish Republic. Uh, on one level, a kind of a failed rebellion. Yes. Um, uh, uh, put down, savage. Put down, and the savage nature of its oppression, uh, like the, the English shelled Dublin, uh, yes. uh, for example. So, 485 and, dead, I was reading, yeah. you know, on uh, both sides. And the, the Irish public turned against the, mm. the, the, the rebels, the, the rising instigators, saying, look, you've destroyed Dublin, kind of blocks and blocks of burnt to the ground, people have been shot, you idiots. But then the English turn around and they start executing the leaders of the Rising day after day in Kilmaine and jail, shooting them. Uh, And that then turns public opinion against the English. So if the English had had just sat on their hands and gone, oh, we'll just lock up the rebel leaders... Mm. 
Ireland might, for, for decades, still have been part of Great Britain. Mm. Instead, it became a republic mm. uh, because the, the English lost pop, uh, popular sentiment. So yeah. it's a huge and pivotal moment in Irish uh, modern history. If you're ever in Ireland, go to Dublin uh, and visit Kilmainham, Kilmainham Jail, which is uh, Kilmainham Jail, uh, which I found a very moving experience. But to come back to the comic, War Chest. Yeah, I, look... I, I... You know, because I didn't know much about this particular moment, I did a bit of reading. What I, um, what I, what I uh, really uh, grab about this comic is that it does advertise on on its front. You know, little known and and um, what is that? Marginal moments, less well known stories less... and characters of the rising. Yeah. And and for me, I mean, it, it actually cues to what we're talking about a moment ago: the gutter. You know, the things that are on the side, the things that are on the margin, and so. If obviously, if we're talking about this in, in in Dublin, we would both have not just knowledge, but you know, fear the deep feeling about this and uh, event. What is amazing, I think, about this little zine is that they, you know, one of the first story is a beautiful story, uh, and it's just a two-page story about the books in the Dublin Library that get shot. So these are bullet. Yeah, books. Uh, uh, because one of the things that happened, you have uh, rebels taking over, say, the GPO and other sites in Dublin, and then you have uh, loyalists to the English students at... Um, I've blanked out in the major university where the Book of Kells is kept. Uh, is it... Um, um, uh, tr- tr- Trinity. Trinity, thank you. Yeah, uh, so you've got students at Trinity firing down the street yeah. uh, and shots being fired back at them. Uh, and so, of course... Uh, bullets kind of ricochet off and shatter uh, window panes in libraries and get embedded in books. Uh, And the the analogy of a book that has been shot Mm. uh, as an analogy... Through its spine. Yeah. Is is just... It's so simply observed and written, but it's such a powerful little two-page story. Yeah. Really, really, really wonderful. And then there are uh, stories of of a young girl taking a message in her hair. There's a story of a... uh, uh, actually, a beautiful uh, autobiographical story of, of the, the cartoonist reading about this young woman who smuggled some guns. And what she has is a beautiful comics moment where she's reading this history and then there's something about the, the, the story that makes it come alive. And literally, the woman then stands up out of the book uh, that the, the cartoonist is reading. So, and... And you know these are, these are, are stories of t- definite, you know, massive bravery, and um, but they are the ones that are to the side, and I suppose it gives oh, it's like, like a, little, a little sort of fractal moments of what the what the you know obviously they were they were shooting in the streets and there was dead people, uh, but the, the, I think this book gives the sense of the way that that. Uh, conflict and that moment and that and that event uh, played out or um, rippled out into uh, other, you know, the, the fabric, the fabric, the fabric of Dublin. So I think it's an amazing. I'm very interested in place and comics at the moment. That's what my PhD is about. And I think that this is a remarkable. Um, uh, you know, these are sort of the bricks. Of, you know, it's a bit like that that James Joyce thing where he says, you know, oh, Ulysses, my book. You know, if, if Dublin was ever destroyed, they could rebuild it uh, from Ulysses, my book. Well, this this is a comic version. You can't build rebuild all of Dublin from this book, but you can rebuild really intimate um, and, and 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 yeah, and, and personal stories of of what 
happened around that conflict? What what uh, yeah contributed to uh, no, 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 what was the fallout from it? Yeah, yeah. its implications. And what one of the things I think is telling is that a lot of the stories in the book are focused on female protagonists. Yep. Uh, so the the leaders of the rising, your kind of Thomas Clarks and Patrick Pearson. Uh, Joseph Mary Plunkett, Roger Casement and others, men. Yeah. Um, uh, there were plenty of women involved in, in the rising, Countess Markovitz being a, a kind of a leading example. But this collect this little anthology, uh, War Chest, um, across a range of, of styles, so simply drawn, uh, the, the Hello Kitty story that you mentioned by Debbie Jenkinson about Kitty O'Doherty, uh, Really beautiful little ink wash on the yeah. page, for example. That's the other thing about yeah. being an anthology. Lovely variety of styles in yeah. here. Uh, and all all quite um, uh, um, accomplished styles of cartooning. So, yeah, yeah. really, yeah. Thanks. Glad Thanks you joined me. Yeah, very, very much. So uh, I've just given oh. you a few other comics that I also picked up at Little Deer Comics in Dublin. So, uh, And uh, last time we talked, uh, I was working at uh, readings th- that afternoon and some, Dub- some uh, not Dublin, but some Irish people came in who tra- on travelling and I was saying, oh, I've heard about this amazing comic, bo- comic book shop in Dublin, Little Deer. And they went, oh, we'll have to look that up when we get back. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. We can, uh, we can share the love. Indeed. You've bought some other comics. I've in. bought some other comics. Some of them are big, uh, fat comics. Um, and uh, on the front of comics... Dealing with difficulty, I suppose, but also um, uh, social history. We've got Ducks by Kate Beaton. Now, uh, people may know Kate Beaton as the cartoonist behind the brilliant Hark a Vagrant, which is a, 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 a online comic. Uh, which is now archived because she stopped making that because she spent years obviously making this. How many pages book? I mean, it's a four hundred page book, maybe uh, there and. Um, and it is a... 430. 430. Gad Zooks, Kate Beaton. So, uh, it's, a, it's a hefty hardcover. It is a hefty hardcover. So this is new. It's just hit the, just hit the bookshop. And I thank, um, thank Julia Jackson, my colleague at Readings, for lending me her copy. Um, and uh, this is... Uh, so what we're used to from Kate Beaton are three... Oh, no, actually, she does two tiers. So, like... Uh, eight, ten-panel comics, very funny ones about Heathcliff or the North, you know, discovering the Northwest Passage. Or you know, they're very um, witty comics. They're very historical. They're very literary. They're great. So, yeah. and uh, the visual style is this kind of scratchy yeah. little black and white. Yeah. There's a sense uh, not of uh, of them being rushed, but there's a, 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 a an urgency. Yes, yes, to absolutely. The way they're drawn. So definitely recommend Hark, a, a, a Vagrant. So that's all just one word and you type it in and you can look at it in any of the, her comics from her years of making that. But this this is a very different beast. So Ducks is this, as we said, 400-page graphic novel. With and the subtitle, Two Years in the Oil Sands. Exactly. So Beaton comes from um, Nova Scotia and when she'd finished her, uh, her degree, 21, she had this little big, big student debt didn't have a lot of money. Her family didn't have a lot of money. She needed. She wanted, really wanted to pay that debt off because the interest would just keep accruing and it'd be a, a, a albatross or a thing around her neck forever. So what she decides to do, like a lot of people from uh, Nova Scotia, they go out to Alberta, also in Canada. But you know, she goes west, young woman, and she goes out to um, a mining camp. Basically, and so these people are extracting. Big companies are extracting oil out of the sands of um, Alberta. Um, 
and so this and so she spends two years there one year in 2005 one year maybe 2007 2008 um and going and working in a in an, an office which um lets out the tools to the men and they are men so so basically she says a couple of times the the um ratio at the camps were were 50 men to one woman so incredibly uh, masculine workshop, a work, masculine workforce. Um, and this book is about a number of things. It's certainly about the, um, the environmental problems that this sort of um, uh, mining causes. She also includes uh, some, a statement from a, a Cree woman uh, there about what has, is happening to First Nations land as, as a consequence of this mining. But Ultimately, I think it's about her being a young woman in this absolutely male world, um, and the well, you know, to put it very lightly, the difficulty of that. But what she needs to negotiate with that, and which shades from you know nice uh, relationships with people, you know, um, um, you know. Like, good colleague sort of stuff, uh, into sexism, into misogyny, into sexual assault. And what I think it needs to be this long um, because it's uh, it's certainly you get this sort of – because you pick up from it the the rhythms of being in a place and being in a place and being in a place from that from that repeti- repetitious that's that that sounds like a bad word but but actually I think this this comic this comic book this graphic novel really uh, um, would um, benefit from what um, I've read very very quickly myself but I think it would um, benefit from what Art Spiegelman says you know a graphic novel is just a comic book that you need a bookmark for yeah. You know, that sort of thing. So to read a bit more on a day and then put it aside and read some more. What I think is remarkable about it is she has this... What she studied at at uni was anthropology and history. And uh, (laughs) she comes back to... to, 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 um, to her home, home after doing that, and her parents say, "Well," and, and she's talking to her sister, and um, the sister says, "How did you even get mum and dad to let you to study that stuff?" And Kate says to her, "Well, I just told them that there are plenty of government jobs in anthropology and history, and are there?" Says her sister, "No," says Kate. <laughs> and co- clearly, we know that Kate has, has, has uh, Kate Beaton has has relayed those skills into her, her comic strip work, but I think she also parlays them into this is a work of anthropology. I think, or sociology, maybe. It's really looking at what that mining boom, uh, um, frontier town uh, culture is. And certainly, you know, she, she, you know, she suffers as part of that. But I, and that is definitely a big note in this book. But, but I think there's a, there's another picture that she's drawing, which is um, compassion, perhaps an eye of pity about what, how people get on in in a, in a situation like that. So it's, yeah, it's a remarkable achievement. So, so ducks, ducks by Kate Beaton, and published by published by Jonathan Cape. So um, so so Ladida. So Ladida. What I mean by that is um, that's a, that's a very um, highbrow high, publisher. Thank you, highbrow publisher for a lowbrow form. Um, 
So, but, but yeah, great, great, great achievement. Um, we've got another minute or so. Uh, I'd just like to uh, advertise an event happening at the Goethe Institute on the uh, Tuesday the 15th of uh, November. So it's in a couple of weeks' time, a week and a half time. And uh, Jan Bauer will be there. He's in a German car comic bookmaker, and he's been up in Uendamu in the Northern Territory showing the community up there um, uh, his new book, uh, Unter Rotten Stund, Under Red Sands, which is a book, an autobiographical comic he's made about his experiences in Uendamu um, and looking at police uh, brutality, p- p- police violence and deaths in custody. So he's been showing that book. This is the book in manuscript. It hasn't been published yet, but it's done. And on that night, he will be reading from the book and also talking uh, to me. I'll be uh, in, in, uh, talking to him about what he, what he found, uh, what, what the people whose stories he is telling in this or wants to publish in this, in this comic book, Under Red Sands, have said it about whether he can, basically. So it'll be a very interesting conversation, both about cartooning um, and about uh, um, permissions, about how to, and so that's, uh, you just look up Jan Bauer, so that's J-A-N, like Jan, Jan Bauer, B-A-U-E-R, and um, Goethe Institute. So that's at six o'clock, it's free, you just need to book in, and there's refreshments, you'll be refreshed, uh, and you'll be challenged and, and, and interested by the conversation. And the Goethe Institute, located at 448 St Kilda Road in Melbourne. Uh, you can also go to www.goethe.de. That's G-O-E-T-H-E. Uh, so if you uh, look at the word, uh, you might just go, Goeth, but Goethe, <laughs> goethe.de. Excellent. Yes, so that'll be that's, a, that's a, an event coming up, um, uh, yeah, just in a, in a week and a half, and we'll talk to talk to Jan about what he what he found and what the conversations were around his representations of life in Uendamu in the comic book art form. Lovely. Yeah, Bernard, we'll catch you in a month's time to talk more comic books. Fantastico. See you then. Triple R. Ella Caldwell is the artistic director of Red Stitch Actors Theatre, which last week, Ella, turned 21. Correct. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. That's a pretty great landmark for an independent company like Red Stitch that is, yes, it's larger than the the small indie companies that might do a show a year, for example, but it's by no means a main stage company like uh, Malthouse MTC with confirmed Australia Council funding and and so forth. So let's talk about 21 years of of Red Stitch, for which you've been there, what, the whole time? I Well, yeah, I was there at the start. I've been in and out a few times, but I have been involved the whole time. I was the baby when when the company started, the youngest to get in in the auditions. As one of the, the, the founding ensemble members. Correct. The fact that it is an ensemble is also one of the things that makes Red Stitch so different to any other company. Yes, you're the artistic director, but uh, it's not your sole vision guiding the company as AD, the the programming, the scripts. Uh, There's a whole lot of other people reading and arguing and debating and being passionate, saying, here's why we should mount this script in 2023. Yeah, that's exactly right. So my role is very much to guide and sort of support that process. And I, I, I think that's one of the strengths of the company, 
because we do have so many different points of view coming in um, with equal sort of weight, you know, in the programming process and also in in the way that the organisation runs more broadly as well. It means lots of lengthy discussions, but almost every time I bring an idea to the company and we and we just talk through things, it always ends up being slightly better as a result. You know, once you've kind of discussed why this is important and what the strengths and potential weaknesses are. When you've got 12 different people giving their opinions, you have to really be rigorous about something. With that many people participating and conversing and and debating the merits of work, uh, we all know the old adage about too many cooks, Mm. but that doesn't seem to be the case with Red Stitch. But I did wonder if it means that it makes it harder to pin down an identity or a style for the company because uh, it can be helpful for companies in terms of marketing, branding, audience uh, assumptions that they know they're going to see a certain style of work. Is that the case at Red Stitch? I think one of the things that we could sort of claim and stick to is that most of the work we do is very contemporary Um but yes, it, I, I guess I'd also argue that like maybe that's one of the strengths as well because you do get quite a variety in the season. I mean, contemporary text-based theatre is is what we do, but that's pretty broad <laughs> things. And and one of the other sort of values of of the way the company works is that we do work with so many associate artists. So I guess one of the reasons that form or style might change is because not only are we sort of considering the texts as a group but then when we invite directors or 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 designers or guest actors um in to work with the organization they're bringing their vision for the work as well so we 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 are an ensemble however the platform we create is shared equally by a lot of associate artists and we kind of invite people in that we're really excited to work with you know so i guess that creates we like to stretch ourselves as well as um offer an opportunity for those artists to sort of stretch themselves as well in the space. So, yeah, I think there is I think there is a bit of a variety there, but that can be enjoyable. I, I have frequent conversations with people who love Red Stitch and keep coming to Red Stitch and go, that one wasn't quite my cup of tea, but all the other ones I've loved. And that's a good, that's a really good, healthy dialogue to have, I think, with your audience. The fact that Red Stitch is committed to text-based theatre... Um... 15 years ago, that may have seemed almost unfashionable at, some, at one point. There was such a focus on, for some companies, on devised work, for example, uh, and, or, uh, and uh, dance theatre and, and, or musicals and so much more. Red Stitch has maintained that, that focus on the, the primacy of the text. Talk to us about that decision and, and why text matters, particularly perhaps talk about the relationship between actors and playwrights. Yeah, it's it, it did feel unfashionable at one point. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> we had that conversation. I, I guess it's it's for us because it's an actors company. Um, from the very beginning, the connection that the actors feel to the playwrights' text has been what gets us ex- excited about putting a play on, and the regard for the writer as sort of being the starting point um, is how we built the organisation. And I think that's also allowed us to. Uh, evolve what we now have is a very strong relationship with local playwrights and and I think that that has been because first and foremost the actors in the company join the company because they're excited about reading lots of plays and having a um a say in 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 what plays get brought to an audience I think that what I've observed as we develop work with playwrights is that not all playwrights but many also enjoy that 
direct relationship because ultimately, you know, you're you're imagining a, a, a work that will be spoken and staged, not remain on the page. So the actor offers, I guess, an opportunity for that to be um, tested and to be alive before it becomes its its final final uh, realization. And so, yeah, I think that the 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 text, it's never been a question for us. It's what we were originally excited about and it's remained a passion for the organisation. Which texts we do and the styles continue to be under great, um, under great sort of investigation every year. Let's talk about the plays that are being staged in 2023 and Red Stitch is doing what other companies are doing as well. You're not announcing a full season in one hit. You're not quite drip feeding program announcements, but you're announcing them in in stages, so that and I, which to me uh, is a logical reaction to the the way our lives have changed. Twenty years ago, twenty one years ago, to be precise, when Red Stitch kind of leapt forth on onto the stage of the world, we were we seemed to be much more focused around booking things in advance, and now our I blame mobile phones. Our perception of time uh, has has become more fluid and if you ask me what I'm doing in a couple of weeks' time, I have no idea these days. So <laughs> that's right. Is that one of the reasons why the the, the programming well the 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 yeah, I guess the programming slash announcement style of Red Stitch has adapted. That's right. We have needed to adapt and you know we've also we we rely on subscriptions. Um, not unlike Triple R <laughs> although unlike Triple R in many ways <laughs> you have to go down to the theatre to, to, to gain the benefits. But I guess we um, we have needed to adapt significantly and we we really do need to sustain subscriptions and and bring people back into the theatre on a regular basis. And so this three-play pass that we've announced with the first three play, well, with the first three plays that we've released um, is also allowing us to move into a much more flexible subscription model as well. So it is a matter of trying to go with the flow and, and figure out what works for everyone. We're bringing our shows a half an hour earlier next year which is a big deal. So we'll start at 7.30. So lots of little changes just to sort of respond to the way everyone is feeling differently. So three productions have been announced so far for next year uh, in January and February, April into May and August into September. Looking at that and thinking about calendars, I presume there are other plays that are going to slot in between them. Yeah, there there are. Otherwise, there's going to be a lot towards the end of the year after September. (laughs) Yeah, no, we've got we've got a couple more in between those that'll be announced shortly. Yeah. Now, a couple of these plays have been developed through Red Stitches Inc. program, which is the development program uh, committed to working with Australian playwrights and developing new work. That's right. So Marianne Butler's play Whitnoom, which is the first show of 2023 for us, um, and also Emily Sheehan's Monument, which is on in August. Both of those have been developed over a number of years with the company, with the actors, with the directors that are attached to that those um, productions as well. Now, Marianne Butler's Whitnoom, let's talk about that in a little more detail. Marianne has a, a beautiful poetic style to her writing, and this is a work which is set in Whittenham, which is a, a town associated with asbestos, blue asbestos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Marianne did a lot of research and this kind of – this sort of emerged once she'd already begun in the program. Her and Susie D, who is the director, were talking about Marianne's ideas for the play and we kind of go back and forth. And, and Marianne took a trip and um, – 
went through the area and spoke to some people and it sort of sparked her wanting to write this play. It's a very it, – it is a very um, – personal play as well there's two there's a mother and a daughter character two 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 characters that have been written with and for Emily Goddard and Caroline Lee two of our ensemble members so the story um follows them and their lives and has a huge amount of sort of love and warmth and energy because it explores a time before um the sort of revelations around what was happening were, were more public so people are there in Whitnoom enjoying their lives and trying to make the most of their life without knowing what that would mean for their future. Um, It's a beautifully written play and very, very, very relevant. The next play that's been announced, uh, Sylvia Curie's Selling Kabul, which also feels very, very relevant. Uh, we, we, we've seen what happened when the, the, the US pulled out of Afghanistan and the, the sudden surge uh, of, uh, of uh, the Taliban and just recently, like literally I think only two days ago, I saw footage online of uh, Taliban whipping young women trying to enter uh, a university or a school to study, for example. Um, so this is a, a play kind of, again, as I said, timely and significant. Tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, it's it's extraordinary. It's it, it's set in Kabul in 2013 when troops have started to withdraw. And uh, this play, it's worth saying, have, has been staged at Red Stitch. We're putting it on at Red Stitch um, largely also because of our wonderful ensemble member, Khisrael Jones-Shakur, who will be playing Tarun in, in, in the play. And... Um, so when I found the play and brought it to the ensemble, I was very curious to hear Kisrao's response because of his um, family and his connection to Afghanistan. And he um, was very passionate about doing the work, as, as were the rest of the ensemble. It's a, it's, a, it's a thriller. It's kind of an edge of your seat, one sort of one place, one time seat uh, piece. And it really does um, grip you from the beginning but it creates a sense of the world as well outside of Kabul, and I, 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 I it's Tarun's been a um, a translator for the troops, and he's waiting for a special visa to travel, and he's with his sister, and he's with um, his sister's husband. They're hiding because of their fears about about him and what may happen if if the Taliban finds him because of the history he has. So it's it's very it's a nail biting but really prof- really well written piece and really um yeah I think extremely insightful of Sylvia Curry the the work. And the third work for 2023 to be announced to date is another new Australian play developed through Inc as we mentioned Emily Sheehan's Monument which is uh, a comedy about well, it's about the youngest woman ever to be elected prime minister of her country mm-hmm. and uh, in her hotel room in Canberra getting ready uh, and her makeup artist. Yes, and the makeup artist she did not expect to have on that morning <laughs> as well. So it's, it is, and it's so, Emily's written a very, very intelligent piece that kind of is delicious and she, as we, she said at the launch, you know, it, it's, it's, beautiful because packaging matters to quote her but it does kind of surprise you and reveal quite a lot of really interesting kind of questions and observations it's curious about different generations relationship to politics it's curious about persona and image and how that plays into uh politics and it's you know also deliciously really does explore 
what it is to for a woman to get her sort of self ready to present to the public. And I think Emily said one of the starting points for this, uh, she was listening to Hillary Clinton speak that in her, in her campaign there were many, 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 many little snippets of things that inspired Emily, but one of them was... Um, that Hillary spent, I think, 600 hours in the makeup chair during the campaign alone. So that gives you an idea of what sparked Emily's curiosity to write this play. And it really is a very fun work. We did a reading of the at Headland Writers Festival in Tathra last weekend, and it was exciting to see the, the warmth and the response and the humour really landing for audiences. Now, for people who want to know more about the 2023 season, how long do they have to wait before you tantalise us with more details? We will be releasing a date soon, but it will be by early next year at the latest. For more info about Red Stitch Actors Theatre and uh, to kind of uh, subscribe uh, with the the three-show pack that Ella mentioned, you can jump online, www.redstitch.net. Red Stitch Actors Theatre, located at the rear of 2 Chapel Street, St Kilda East. And Ella, before I let you go, just quickly, you've got uh, another production coming up very soon this year. We do, and it is another comedy, and everyone wants a comedy right now, it seems. I certainly do. It's by Ross Mueller. It's called A Simple Act of Kindness, directed by Pete Houghton and featuring... Um, ensemble members Sarah, Joe, Hisrao and our guest actor Lou Wall. It is hilarious and it opens very, very soon. Like first preview is 23rd of November, I think, and really funny about actually kind of skewers real estate. So, you know, not not that far off topical as well. Yeah. Uh, for more info, go to www.redstitch.net. I've been chatting with Red Stitch's artistic director, Ella Caldwell. Ella, thanks heaps for coming in. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the art, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>